We're in a series of weekend worship messages that we call Sticky Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. It's a series designed to better help all of us answer some of the most challenging questions ever asked of Christians about Christianity. This week's question is no exception. Is there really a heaven? And would a loving God, a good and loving God, really send people to hell? I'm indebted to a guy named Mark Middleberg, another guy named John Ortberg, a few others for some of their resources that assisted my study and my prep this week. I know I told you last week that I was going to talk about this little guy named Rob Bell today, the stir around his new book, a book that's called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, the fate of every person who ever lived. But some weeks this happens that some of my favorite material literally ends up on the floor of my office. It gets cut out of the message for the sake of time, really. That happened this week. And so I apologize for that. Forgive me. I really thought that matters of heaven and hell were way too important to short them on time, so I opted to cut the Rob Bell stuff out of this message. So here's what I'm going to do. Early this week, I'm going to blog some stuff about Bell's book. As if there hasn't been enough already, I'll throw my 10 cents in, right, Uh, and give you my take on it. So just watch the website, journeyweb.net, for that. Keep an eye on my Facebook and Twitter feed. They'll alert you when that posts. If you came just to hear the Rob Bell stuff, this would be a great time to leave, Really sorry about that. I'm kidding, too. Speaking of books, there's a book that came out in the late 1990s that gives you instructions on what to do in the most dire of circumstances, some of the most dire circumstances that you could possibly imagine. The book is called The Worst Case Survivor's Handbook. It includes instructions like these ones, which supposedly came from a manual for Peace Corps volunteers preparing to go to South America. This particular chapter is entitled, What to Do If You're Attacked by an Anaconda? It's a giant snake. Number one, true, this is right from the book. If you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Number two, lie flat on the ground. Number three, put your arms at your sides, your legs tight against one another. Number four, the snake will come and begin to nudge and climb over your body. Doesn't that sound like fun? Number five is absolutely crucial, especially as the snake is nudging and climbing over your body. Number five, do not panic. Number six, after the snake has examined you, it will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Always the feet end. Number seven, the snake will now begin to suck your legs into its body. You must lie perfectly still. This will take a long time. (laughs) Number eight, when the snake has reached your knees, slowly, so the snake, you're in its mouth up to here, Slowly, the instruction manual says, and with as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, very gently slide it into the side of the snake's mouth, between the edge of its mouth and your leg, then suddenly rip upward, severing the snake's head. Yes! Take that, PETA. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Kidding. Number nine, be sure your knife is sharp. And number 10, the final instruction, be sure you have your knife. The worst case survivor's handbook, it has literally sold millions of copies. It covers every kind of situation you can imagine. How to perform an emergency tracheotomy. What to do if you run into a mountain lion. How to respond if you jump out of a plane and your parachute doesn't open. And it's written like straight up. 
It's literally real advice from experts in their fields. The best advice on what to do in all of these types of situations. But nobody buys the book for the actual advice. It's sold instead in the humor section of bookstores. It's a joke, right? And it's really funny as you read these things until you come to a section like how to survive a tornado, right? And then all of a sudden, like on a dime, it isn't funny anymore, is it? Because you see, it's all fun and games until the scenario described actually happens to people who we know and who we love in places that are very dear to some of us, and then lives are lost and hearts are broken. And then it's not funny anymore because it's all really about life and death, isn't it? And Journey, I say all that to you as sort of the underpinning reason for a series like this one. People's very hard, challenging questions about God, faith, and Christianity, they're real. And their questions deserve our best attention, our best answers, because frankly, this stuff is a way bigger deal than just life or death. See, this is about people's eternities. And life and death is really quite small compared to people's forever destiny, isn't it? That means, Journey, that we have to take their questions seriously. And I want us as a community to be known for honest dialogue, for being a people in a place where we're able to talk about anything For us being a community where we help people be incredibly thoughtful as they step across the line of faith in God and in Jesus Christ, that's the kind of people that we want to be as a church. And I know that as we talk about matters of heaven and hell, that for a whole bunch of people in our society, the only time they ever run across a reference to heaven or hell is in cartoons, right? Cartoons like The Far Side, Gary Larson, you know, he's kind of kooky and crazy, and he's always portraying heaven with caricatures of St. Peter at the pearly gates, clouds, angels, wing, you know, this sort of thing. He does the same thing with hell, doesn't he? He portrays hell with caricatures of flames and pitchforks and horns and tails and such. And for lots of people, heaven and hell become jokes for a lot of people. And also, on the other hand, Lots of people have heard both heaven and hell talked about in ways that are so manipulated and so distorted that it just pushes all kinds of buttons inside of us, right? But I want to say this, that the sacred text, the word of God, the Bible teaches entirely, and I entirely and fully believe that human beings, every single one of us, face an eternal destiny. The human soul is not disposable. It isn't just lights out after this life is over. And the Bible teaches that our eternal destiny will either be an eternal destiny with God or an eternal destiny apart from God. It's one or the other according to the Bible. And every one of us, every person who's ever lived, every one of us here, every person within the hearing of my voice has to decide what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? So let's start with this question. How do we know that heaven and hell are real and that real people can really go there? You should know that over the years, lots of very interesting approaches have been taken to try to answer that very question. Some people actually tried an experiment in which they weighed people right before and right after the moment of their death in an attempt to determine the weight of a human soul. Their hypothesis at the outset of the experiment was that as the soul left the body, that there would be an immediate, although minute, reduction in weight. Of course, the experiment turned up absolutely nothing, because in the Christian understanding of the soul, it's not a material entity, is it? Which means that we would never expect it to register even on the most sensitive of scales. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in the Bible speaks of eternity inside of us. Look at what it says. He, that's God, has planted eternity in the human heart. God has planted eternity in the human heart. 
and you look at people in just about every culture, just about every era, you discover this near universality of belief. There's something more after this life is over, which would confirm what Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about, wouldn't it? That though we're creatures of this earth, though we carry quite a limited perspective on life and death and what's to come, we all innately have this sense of having been made, created actually for something more. But we settle, don't we? We settle a whole lot of the time. We very often forget that we're not ever going to be fully satisfied in this life. And so we give in. And we dredge up whatever it is we think will substitute in our lives for ultimate meaning and purpose. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in that vein. We are half-hearted creatures, speaking of all of humanity, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. How many of us are fooling around with drink and sex and ambition as if it were everything? When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And so here we are, a whole bunch of us, like ignorant children, just settling, right? Because we can't grasp that the holiday offer is truly available, and it calls out to us every single day at the very level of our souls, you were made for something more than just this. It's the call of God to every one of us. The apostle Peter refers to people who are God followers, Christ followers, like this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you, look at what he calls we who follow Jesus, as temporary residents and foreigners. Temporary residents and foreigners. I warn you to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Don't go on fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, Peter is saying, stay away from that stuff because look, you're just temporary residents. You're just a foreigner sort of passing through. The writer of Hebrews spoke of God's people who had been martyred for their faith in these words, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. All these people who have been martyred died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed, look at this, that they were foreigners and nomads here, just passing through. Foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Whoa, heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Our hearts yearn for something more that God says will be ours someday, don't they? And the most sure and most powerful case study for the reality of life after death, that there really is a heaven, there really is a hell, you know what it is? It's Jesus. His very clear, very direct teaching on the topic. No one in all of human history has the credentials he has. No one in human history has the authority to tell us the truth about matters of heaven and hell and eternity. And you think about what Jesus did, what gives him those credentials. Well, he alone fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, where he would be born what lineage he would be born into, what kind of birth he would have, how he would live, how he would minister, how he would suffer at the hands of the very people whom he came to serve. Jesus was also very unique in the variety and impact of these incredibly miraculous signs he performed, dramatic healings. He raised people from the dead, for crying out loud. And he did those miracles very often in a whole bunch of different settings in the presence of often hostile witnesses. And they could never deny what it was that he was doing, what he had done. Think about this. Jesus knew the hearts and minds and thoughts of people in a way that nobody else ever has or or had. 
Check this one out. He lived a perfect, sinless life. The only person to ever pull that one off. And he did it in such a way that even his enemies could not deny or find fault with anything about him. So you know what they had to do? They had to result to bringing false accusations against him. They had to make stuff up because there wasn't anything that would stick to him. He was perfect, sinless, without fault. And then you think about what else he did. He showed supreme love for every person, even people who opposed him. And how did he do it? By willingly laying down his life, dying a very cruel death on the cross. And then there's this sort of crux event that establishes Jesus' credibility. You know what it was? He rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, just like he said he would. And you hear that and you're going like, well, doesn't that in and of itself prove that what Jesus, the Son of God, said about any topic, for that matter, must be true, especially topics of life, death, eternity, what is to come. And it shows, at the end of the day, that Jesus was in the position to know, to speak from actual experience, kind of a been there, done that kind of a thing about what's true and what's real, about life beyond this one. And you know what it is? It's the beauty of heaven that Jesus speaks of, the wonder of heaven. And really, it's the horrors of hell. And there's no other way to say it. The wonder and beauty of heaven and the horrors of hell. So what exactly did Jesus teach about the afterlife? What is to come? I thought it would be smart if we just sort of took a safari through some of Jesus' teachings on the subject. And so we're just going to do that. I'm going to read these to you, starting in John 14. And we're going to go through several of these. John 14, starting in verse 2. This is Jesus talking, every one of these. So there is more than enough room in my Father's home... If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. Matthew 22, starting in verse 29, Jesus replied, Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, there will be like angels in heaven, but now as to whether there will be a resurrection of the dead. Have you ever read this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Harsh words. John 3.13, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will, Jesus says. Matthew 5.29, this is brutal. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 23, 33, harsh words, snakes, sons of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell? Luke 6, 22 and 23, what blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man, persecution. What blessings await you, Christian? when you are persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, look what Jesus says, be happy. Leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Luke 10, 15, and you people of Capernaum, 
Be glad you're not one of these. Will you be honored in heaven? No. You will go down to the place of the dead. Luke 10, 20, but don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. John 17, 3, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Father, I want these to whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin, all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're gonna talk about that one in a few minutes. And the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Matthew 25, 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand, the goats at his left, and the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. And the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. And what is likely the most compelling look that Jesus ever gives of the realities of heaven and hell, Luke 16, starting in verse 19. This will be familiar to a whole bunch of you. It's a story, Jesus tells, a parable. Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate, right outside of his door, is what Jesus is saying, lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. And the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. I have five brothers. I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, for if someone has sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins, turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. And you take all of that, the counsel of Jesus, and what's absolutely crystal clear from Jesus himself is that he believed in heaven and he believed in hell and he believed in it entirely and sincerely and he invites the exact same thing from every single one of us. And remember, he's in a unique position to know exactly what he's talking about. Think of all the evidence he gave for his existence prior to his coming to earth as a human being. He gave proof, evidence for the fact that he would and did live beyond the grave. He gave evidence to being uniquely in touch with his father, God in heaven. That gives us then every reason to believe he has the experience. He has the credentials. He has the requirements to tell us with authority what's real. 
What's actually going on beyond the here and now, this earthbound life we're all living? And that it's heaven is a real place of joy, a place of reward. And hell is a place, a real place of anguish and regret. And so let's move to the next part of the question. Would a good and loving God really send people to hell? Would a good and loving God really send people to hell? And to answer that, I want to use a case study that I've heard a few guys use before. You might call it the Aunt Edna case, if you would like. I actually had an Aunt Edna, and uh, she was a gem of a woman, but this case is not based on the life of my Aunt Edna. Maybe yours, but not mine. When the question comes up, would a good and loving God really send people to hell? Lots of times people tag on, well, what about my Aunt Edna? Or Aunt whatever, fill in the blank. She's a nice old lady. She never hurt anybody. She pays her taxes on time. She bakes cookies for the grandkids and for the neighborhood children. She's kind to stray cats. Why? I'm not sure. Cats seem likely to have been a product of the fall, not creation. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's a joke. I do hate cats, however. (laughs) Take that, PETA. We should get back to Aunt Edna, shouldn't we? They say she's a good person. She's just never been much for the church thing, the Bible thing, the God thing. And so then they say, so you mean to tell me that because my Aunt Edna is not a Christian that she has to spend eternity frying in hell? I mean, really, they say. I believe in God, but my God, the one I believe in, is a God of love, a God of compassion, and he would never send someone as good as my Aunt Edna to hell. Now, let's go back to the very beginning or near the beginning of Aunt Edna's life and let's sort of lay out a course of events that we hypothesize unfolded in her life. When she was young, very young, every once in a while, likely around times Christmas and Easter, and so she would hear the story of the God who loved her, wouldn't she? And God would whisper to her soul through the story of scripture saying, you know, you can learn more about me. I'd actually quite enjoy that if you did because I would actually quite enjoy if you were my child. And Aunt Edna, she made a little decision at that point, young. It probably wasn't overt. She probably never verbalized it. It probably wasn't even conscious, but she made a decision, you know, I'm just not gonna do that. I'm gonna use my mind to pursue other things. I'm not gonna use it to pursue God. And then there would be other times in Edna's life when she would look at a sunset or a tree or the ocean or a mountain and God would whisper to her through the creation. He says in the scripture that he does that. I made this, God would whisper to Edna. I actually made you. You didn't get here by yourself and you know that. And you can know me, the one who created all of this and you, and you can say thank you to me. And Edna made another little decision. Mm -mm. I'm not going to acknowledge you. I'm not going to give thanks. And then there were times in Edna's life when she did something wrong because, and Edna, she's great, but she's no more perfect than you or I are perfect. And God would whisper to her via his Holy Spirit through her conscience, you know, you messed up there and you know, you can be forgiven. You actually know you need this and come to me. I can give you a fresh start and I'll be glad to do that. It just means that you have to confess. You have to acknowledge, you have to repent the Holy Spirit whispered, and again, Edna made a little decision, huh? I won't do that either. I'm not going to bend my knee. I'm not repenting of my sin. I'm quite all right, thank you. And as Edna grew older, more of the people who she knew began to struggle with health issues. As happens when you get older, lots of them even began to die. And at every single funeral Edna went to, she was confronted with her very own mortality. And God whispered to her through those experiences, one after another after another, you know, Edna. God's Holy Spirit would say, you can't beat this death thing. 
You can't beat it. But I have actually sowed the concept of eternity into your heart, which means that this fear of death, the longing for something more, it's there, it's inside of you, it's in every human being. And if you ask me, if you simply say yes to me, you can be with me forever, starting right here, right now. It isn't just about heaven someday. Sure, it's part of the deal. But it's new quality, new quantity of life right here, right now. And again, Edna made the decision. Uh-uh. I'm not asking. I'm not saying yes. I want to be the captain of my own destiny. I have this figured out. And Aunt Edna, she gets to the end of her life And maybe she never said it outwardly, but the truth is that she said no to God like a thousand different times, didn't she? She closed and locked the door of her heart over and over and over again. And she doesn't want to confess to him, submit to him, worship him, serve him. All she really wants to do is be left alone by him. And being left alone by God, you know what the Bible calls that? Hell. Being left alone by God is hell. Because you see, the very essence of hell is relational. We're relational beings made for relationship. And the relationship that we were made for above all is a relationship with God, our creator. And the essence of hell then, see, is to be separated entirely from God. And so some people say, I cannot, I will not believe in a God who would send someone to hell. But I don't believe that God would ever send anybody to hell. Rather, we choose to go there ourselves. We choose it. And the Apostle Paul says about people who close and lock the door of their hearts, shut God out of their lives, which is really as bad as it gets for the human soul. He says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And God responds. And he uses this one phrase over and over. You'll pick it up. Romans 1, starting in verse 24. So God, here it is, the phrase, abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. There it is again. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, here it is again. He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. That word abandoned that the New Living Translation uses is rendered God gave them up in the NIV. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And to say it another way would be to say it this way. God says, look, if you really want an existence and experience outside of me, outside of my will, outside of my knowledge, I'll absolutely permit you to have it. I'll absolutely permit you to have it. To say it another way might be to say it this way. A person can say to God, absolutely, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And God will ultimately say, okay. And God will leave you alone The result of which is when a person finally and utterly wants to be left alone by God, you know what that is? Hell. That's hell. The ultimate and inevitable consequence of the persistent, subtle rejection of God's grace and God's presence. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And that's dark, isn't it? It is not fun to think about, talk about, speak publicly about. None of us like to think about 
stuff like that. We'd much rather sweep it under the rug, pretend it doesn't exist. No one has ever liked to think about this stuff. The Old Testament prophets knew that people would much rather think about more pleasant things. The prophet Micah from the Old Testament, he said it to the people of Israel, Micah 2.11, suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you the joys of wine and alcohol. That's just the kind of prophet you would like, he says. Here's the question. What does alcohol do to your body? Does it make you more comfortable or does it make you more alert? Now, some of you are trying to pretend right now that you have no idea. (laughs) You're pretending to be Baptists when really you're more like Lutherans. Don't pretend you don't know. What's alcohol do to you? More alert or more comfortable? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. More relaxed, right? Just settle in. Every one of you who knew, we've recorded you, and we'll have a conversation later. (laughs) Kidding. And so what the Old Testament prophet Micah is pointing out is something that's very true about human nature. When something is dark, like talking about hell is dark, we just don't want to think about it. We would much rather stay comfortable, relax, take it easy, wouldn't we? But Jesus does quite the opposite, doesn't he? He kind of gets in our faces knowing that our innate human nature is to avoid dark, hard topics. And he emphatically tells us that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Tell me that isn't in your face. A gnashing of teeth, when you run it out, it's an expression of frustration, really. It's an expression of disappointed longing so deep that it's actually way too deep for words even. The phrase comes from the Old Testament, Psalm 112, 10. The wicked, that's us, by the way. That's not like a few select people over there. That's us, all of humanity. The wicked will see this and be infuriated. They will grind their teeth in anger and they will slink away, their hopes thwarted. They will grind their teeth in anger. The New Living renders it that way. That's gnash your teeth over in the NIV translation. Because you see, we were made for God. Nothing, and I mean nothing else, can satisfy our soul. And so you hear that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you imagine human beings facing eternity having chosen to cut themselves off from the one who has the power to satisfy their souls. And you imagine an entire eternity of insatiable desire, frustrated longing, because no, I will not bend my knee to the one who can heal me, who can make me whole, who I was made for relationship with. Gnashing of teeth, ultimate frustration, separation forever and ever. And that's what hell is. Separation from God. And get this, God doesn't do it to anybody. We choose it. We choose it. And in the face of all of that, quite harsh talk about hell Jesus says this, do you have any idea, people, the price that God is willing to pay so that you can spend eternity with my Father in heaven and not apart from him? Do you have any idea the price? To say it another way would be to say it this way. Jesus asks, do you have any clue of God, my Father's heart for you? Every single one of you. You multiply the love that you have for the person whom you love the very most in this whole world a thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand, and there you're just starting to get an inkling of how much God loves you. The desperation of God's heart for you, every single one of you. Here's God's heart for you. Look at Luke 15, starting in verse four. 
Jesus makes it quite clear. If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? God's heart for you. And when he's found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. God's heart for you. Here's another one. Luke 15, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And then Luke 15, starting in verse 11, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. That's a bold request. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Nice guy. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry, even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, oh, that was a stark moment. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's rehearsing the speech. So he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began God's heart for you, for every person on the planet who's ever lived, whoever will live. God's heart for you. And you take all of that and you say, that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And when he was there hanging, bloody, he took our sin and he took our pain and he took the hell that is separation, removal from God. And the cross is a place where brokenhearted people like us have been coming for like 2,000 years plus now. And here's the deal. You can absolutely and entirely choose to be separated from God if you really, really, really want to. You can. But get this. If you want hell, you're going to have to walk all the way around the cross. You're going to have to walk all the way around the cross if you really want hell. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer. Just think on all this with the Lord. And while you're praying, I want to read you a verse from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Bible says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, talking about His promise to return, to come back. As some people think, because some people think He's being slow about His promise. 
But Peter writes, no, he is being patient for your sake. He is being patient for your sake. That's the heart of God for you. The heart of God for every person who's ever lived. Verse goes on, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The heart of God for you, for everyone. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And Jesus says, look, there's a way, there's a way for you to get back to God. And it isn't just that you believe in your head that there is a God. It's not that. The way back to God involves this little thing called repentance, and it stings sometimes, doesn't it? It just does. And maybe for you, this is your day to get back to God. This is your day. And to get back to God, you repent. And you repent by confessing to God. You back up the whole dump truck and say, here it is, all my sin, every bit of it. No stone in your heart and mind left unturned. Here it all is. And you say, God, here it is. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner over and over and over again. And I recognize that everything in my life has been going away from you. Everything. Look at this mountain of my sin. And Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know you more than I want anything else. Please forgive me. Please change me. I get it. You took my place. You took my consequences. You took my punishment. You took my sin when you died on the cross in my place. I get it. But I don't just get it up here in my head. Here's what I'm doing. I am setting it to my life. I'm fully embracing it. I'm embracing you. Here's me all of me and if there's those of you today who are saying I'm repenting I'm experiencing the love of God I'm turning back to you God please forgive me for my sins make me new I'm surrendering all of my life to you I'm not trusting in anyone or anything else Jesus it's you alone save me Jesus I give my life to you if that's your prayer today would you just real boldly slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say yep here's me Here I am, yeah, there and there and there and here, absolutely, here, yes, and here, yes, absolutely. I'm saying yes with you, yes, absolutely, yes. Life's changing, yes, there and there, yes. God's making you all brand new, yes, in the back, absolutely. Holy new, never to be the same. Yes, absolutely yes. Yes, I'm saying yes with you and you, yes. There. Jesus. We're not just believing you in our heads. We're not just loading up our fire insurance or get out of hell free card. We're saying, uh-uh, here's my life, all of me. 
given to you in light of everything that you gave for me. Here I am. Take me. Take my heart. Take my mind. All the stuff that is incongruent with what it means to be your child. Weed it out. Throw it out. We want to live inside your kingdom and we want to bring it to earth just as it is in heaven. Following you isn't about going to heaven someday. It's about knowing you and following you and walking with you and serving with you, invoking and inviting your kingdom right here, right now. And so we're bringing the kingdom, all of us together, bringing it to earth for your glory for the sake of your name, for the sake of those, God, who don't yet know you. May they see you in us and may they hunger and thirst after you. You're the one we were made for. You're the one we were created in the image of and our lives are caught up in you and in you alone.